Amen. Praise God and welcome again tonight. This is our third installment in this series of teachings on being seated together with Christ. Uh, this is a teaching digging deep into the book of Ephesians. On Sunday morning, I gave the background to the study, establishing the authority of Apostle Paul to write the things he wrote. Last night, we went a little further in that background, explaining what it means to be a saint of God, who we all are as believers. So we addressed the background in the last two days, Sunday and Monday. And so tonight, I want to give the overview for this study, and then pray. And you'll see the reason for which we have to pray, perhaps tonight, or if not tonight, you'll see the reason more clearly tomorrow night. So really tonight, I'm gonna to give the overview of the whole book, which will help you, should you go home and start studying, it becomes a lot simpler because you have an understanding of how the book is put together. And then from tomorrow night, we are going to really get into the weeds. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Praise God. You guys are looking at me stone-faced. It's going to be all right. Amen. Bless God. All right. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so the book of Ephesians speaks particularly of the church and is the only book in the New Testament that unveils the church in its seven aspects. Now, we are not going to go into the details of the seven aspects of the church, but I'm just going to run through them quickly for you to hear. There are seven aspects of the church. And this is the only book that completely addresses the church in all the seven aspects. Number one, that the church is the body of Christ. The fullness, the expression of the one who fills all in all. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. Number two, that the church is the new man, a corporate man, not having only the life of Jesus, but also having his person. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Number three, in the book of Ephesians, we see the church as the kingdom of God with the saints as citizens possessing its rights and bearing its responsibilities. Number four, we see the church as the household of God a family full of life and enjoyment. Number five, 
we see the church as the dwelling place of God in which he lives. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Number 6, we see the church as the bride, the wife of Christ. For Christ's rest and satisfaction. And lastly, we see the church as the warrior, a corporate fighter who deals with and defeats God's enemies to accomplish God's eternal purpose. So those are the seven aspects of the church that you find in different places all over the scriptures. But right here in the book of Ephesians, they are all there together. Why? Why does Ephesians take the time to address all the seven aspects of what the church is in one book? The answer is very simple. This is because the book of Ephesians is that most, hear me now, complete message describing the church, its position, its blessings, and the expectations of God as a result of those blessings. I'm going to say that one more time. The book of Ephesians is the most complete message describing the church, its position, its blessings, and the expectations of God as a result of those blessings. Now, I said this message is going to be about the overview of the book. So let's get to it. This book, written by Apostle Paul, falls into two natural divisions. Now, this will help you as you begin to read on your own. The book of Ephesians falls into two natural divisions. Chapters 1 through 3, 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters, gives us a doctrinal view from God's perspective, from heavenly perspective, from eternal perspective, about what the church is. The first three chapters deals mainly with redemptive truths which God has wrought in Christ for us. Did you guys get that? Okay, three people said yes. (laughs) Let me say that again. This whole book is divided into two. Paul is in an incredible writer, author, whatever you want to call him, inspired. Only the Spirit of God can give him the inspiration and the wisdom to write the way he wrote in this particular book. So the first three chapters of all the six addresses everything that God has done for us as a church in Christ. All the, first of all, the, your position in Christ. It tells you and I we are saints, we are accepted, we are loved. Then it tells us not only about position in Christ or our identity in Christ, then it goes on and tells us about our blessings in Christ. 
Amen? Amen. And it lists all the blessings that goes with the position. So, I mean, you guys are in various fields of profession. Uh, you're a lawyer. There are certain perks that goes, about being, uh, that goes with being a lawyer. You're an engineer. You have an engineering job. There are certain perks that goes along with that. You're a school teacher. There are certain perks that goes along with being a school teacher. And on and on and on. So first, Paul addresses your position. Who are we? Our identity. Who are we? What has God done? How did he do it? Then he lists all the blessings that go along with that. He addresses that in three chapters. Now, because these things are so deep, they are so deep to the natural mind, Paul prayed two prayers in the book of Ephesians. The first one he prayed in chapter one. Because, and, and now, now, after studying this now, in preparing to teach it, I see the wisdom in that. See, we've read these things and we've read the prayers, and we just say, okay, Paul is praying. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, he's praying. But now I realize why he's praying these prayers. Because the things he's telling us about what God has done, the natural man cannot believe it. It is so astounding that he says, you know what? I need to pray for you guys to have ears to hear what I'm about to tell you. Remember his prayer in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither has it entered the hearts of men, the things that God has prepared in the past, past tense, prepared for them that love him. It's about they are revealed to us by the Spirit. So now he's laying this in for this church. And tomorrow night, you will understand why this church is so critically important. I can't get into that tonight. Because what I'm trying to do is just uh, do measure by measure by measure and not just run all, all over the place. It's very, it's very tempting to do so, but we, I have to be disciplined. So I don't confuse you. But so he prays for them because he recognized that apart from God opening their eyes, they would never see it. Have you ever shared the gospel with people that you know that they need to hear it? And they understand every letter, every word of what you're saying, but they are not giving in. They are not even considering what you're saying. They hear, it's not that they are deaf. They can hear you. They hear the words, but the door to their heart is not open. Because it takes the Spirit of God to do that. And if there's any one thing we take out of this series of teachings, I am praying that God will help us to know that you and I must develop a more intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. Amen. In fact, let me address some of that up front. As we look at the overview of the book of Ephesians, we see the Trinity doing their part so clearly. Now, today, I understand more today than Sunday when I was telling you Jesus could not tell the disciples what was going to happen. Remember John 16 verse 12? He said to them, I have many more things to say to you, but you are not able to bear them. Yeah. And most of what we know now about the gospel of God's grace is given to us through Apostle Paul. 
And we made, that, we made that very clear that it's not a contradiction, but that Paul took off from where Jesus left off. But now, reading the way this thing is put together, I understand why now. Quickly, I know where I was. Where I, was. I said there are two divisions. And the first one, chapters 1, 2, 3, addresses the redemption truths and our position, our blessings. Let's read verses uh, four through six. Watch this. Ephesians chapter one, verses, verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Who is he talking about? God the Father. God the Father is who initiated all of this. Watch this. Follow me. So first of all, Paul presents to us God the Father's plan. Then from verse 7, in him, we have redemption through his blood. Who is that? Jesus. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Okay? Now, so we see God the Father initiating our redemption. We see God the Son, Jesus, executing it. Are you following me so far? Now look at verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with who? The Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So what do we see? God the Father initiating. God the Son executing. God the Holy Spirit implementing. So Jesus understood his part. His part was that redemption, execution, and going to the cross. And he said, I'm going to stick in my own lane. I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit when he comes to do his job. Are you guys understanding what I'm saying to you? So because of the fact that the Trinity understood what they did and how they did it and how they worked together in unity and all of that stuff, Jesus stayed in his own lane. He stayed in his own lane. Because he knew the Spirit was coming. And the Spirit would speak the mind of the Father and the Son. And so there was no need for him to go ahead of time and say anything because he knew the Spirit was coming. The plan was, was working. Hello? So there's a division, two divisions in Ephesians. The first one, the first three chapters are just in our positions in Christ, our blessings in Christ, and all the things that God has done for us. Now, the second part and the second division from chapters four through six addresses 
my responsibilities as a result of what God has already done. Did you get that? Chapters 4 through 6 addresses my responsibility, your responsibility, as a result of what God has already done. This is the incredible difference between the grace of God and the law that God gave. So first it tells us the blessings. It tells us our privileges. It tells us all the incredible benefits available to us in the kingdom of God in Christ. Then in chapter 4, it says, because you already have these things, now this is how you should live. Do you see the difference? That's how the entire book of Ephesians is put together. Two parts. Now, that second part, the part that addresses our responsibility is yet split into two. Okay? The first part addresses our lifestyle in the world. And we're going to get into all the weeds of that uh, on Thursday, I believe. Okay? But the second part of, this, of the Se- the, okay, yeah, the, 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 the second part of the second section. <laughs> yeah, the second part of part B, thank you, addresses our attitude towards the enemy. You get it? So really, when we look at it like that from that perspective, we can actually say there are three sections to the book of Ephesians. Section number one, the blessings that comes with my position and the redemptive truth that God has done for us. Number two, our lives in the world. Number three, our attitude towards the enemy. There is no other book that's that complete. No other book. But now, from tomorrow, we'll begin to see the wisdom of God why he gave this message like that. So did you get us so far? All right. So now, three parts, and there are three key words that will open up each of these three parts. Three key words. And we're going to start with the first one tomorrow night. We'll take the second one on Thursday night and hopefully take the last one on Friday night. Three key words that unlocks and open each of these sections. First word, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Ephesians 2, verse 6. It says, And raised us up together and made us sit 
together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The first word that opens up the first part that describes to us our position, our blessings, and our redemptive privileges is the word sit. S-I-T. Or, if you will, being seated in Christ. It's unbelievable. That's the first word. That's the first key word. Being seated together with Christ. Amen? I'm almost tempted to just go into that a little bit, but let me... <laughs> let me let, being seated together. Powerful concept. <laughs> in other words, God wants you and I to know. You know, you see, in John 19, 30, Jesus came, he was, at the, he was going to the cross, and he said, it is finished. It is finished. What does he mean when he said it is finished? It's accomplished the mission. The law that was against us is totally annulled. Rolled away, put aside. The enemy who constantly harasses us, defeated completely aside. It is finished. So Jesus, ah, my God. Okay, I'll wait till tomorrow. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> let me, let me. So being seated is the first key that unlocks the first session. The idea here is you and I begin our kingdom life in a resting position. Now, you have to see why Paul said, I need to pray for you. Because when I say you begin with rest, for some of us, what? I had to work 10 hours a day. I don't call that no rest. <laughs> and I hear, what you, I hear where you're coming from. But from heaven's perspective, he did all the work and just makes you, make you and I more than conquerors. He did all the work. I said, oh, you know what? I've done all for you. Just, hey, go at it. And when we get into the details tomorrow, you'll see clearly. So the second key word that opened the second section of this book is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he said, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. So the first key word is what sit. The second key word is what walking. Or walk, W-A-L-K. In the kingdom of God, you have to sit before you walk. And to do it otherwise, you disrupt the divine order and you'll be frustrated and you'll get no lasting results. You only walk after you've sat. Now, isn't it amazing for you parents 
You raise babies. What does the baby do before they start walking? Oh. Oh. That child will not walk unless they sit. So God is using something we're most familiar with to understand kingdom life. You sit, you are rested, <laughs> and then you can begin to walk. So Paul is saying here, Ephesians 4.1, listen, as a result of what God has done, walk worthy of, the, of your vocation or your calling. Amen? Key word number one, we sit. That's section one. Key word number two, we walk. That's section two. We are walking. And the key word number three, we find in Ephesians chapter six, Ephesians chapter six, uh, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to do what? Stand against the wars of the devil. So you sit, you walk, and then you can stand. I, I tell you this, I kid you not, I lie not in the Holy Ghost. You dare not try to stand if you are not seated. You, you, you will not be able to stand. That is where many of us have been missing it. We are trying to stand against the enemy, but we are not seated. This is a divine order. You cannot change it. Victory always comes from the place of rest. That's why on New Year's Eve, we read Psalm 23, and when David began to talk about all the blessings of the shepherd to the sheep, the first thing he said, he maketh me to lie down. In other words, he helped me to find a good gesture of rest. I'm lying down. I'm restful. I'm at peace. I'm secured. We sit, then we can walk, and then we can stand. You cannot walk unless you're seated. You cannot stand unless you're seated. It comes in that order. We sit first, which means you and I labor to, get, to enter into his rest. And then from that position of rest, things can happen. Oh, I can give you examples from the scriptures. Solomon was a good example. What made his reign so prosperous? God promised David, you want to build me a house? I love you, David, and I know you love me. But you lived in a different era. You are a man of war. You are always going, 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 going. You can't build for me. So your son that will come after you, Solomon, will be a man of peace. Why? Because I will have given him rest all around. He can build my house. Because my house can only be built in peace time, restful time, not a time of war. Amen? So, let's 
summarize what we've done so far. So our position in Christ is described by sitting. Our life in the world is described by walking. And our attitude to the enemy is described by standing. <laughs> Look at that word stand. That in itself. You guys remember the story, the, the case with uh, Trevor Martins in Florida? Where that guy killed him and uh, everybody thought, man, this should be an open shot case. I mean, this guy should be th- thrown into the slammer. What was the Florida law? Stand your ground. Standing your ground. It's a defensive posture. You stand your ground. The implication is you are not trying to gain ground which did not belong to you. You are trying to defend what you already own. So when God tells me and you to stand, he's saying to you, you own it already. It's yours. If anything, the enemy is one trespassing, you are defending your position, you are not the aggressor, he is. Now, because I want, I want us to spend at least 10 minutes to pray, so let, let me just, let me just, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 15. Ah, time has flown. Verse 15 says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, go on, do not cease to give thanks for you, making, making mention of you in my prayers. What is Paul praying for this Ephesian church? What is a prayer? First of all, you need to ask yourself, does Paul himself, no, okay, no, 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 before I go there. You need to understand that Paul wrote all of this, this letter, while he was in prison. He was not at risk Carlton. (laughs) Neither was he in Hawaii having a good vacation. He was in change. In prison. Think about that. And he still had the presence of mind not to be consumed with what we would consider his own problem. And then when he's praying, he said, I do not fail to make mention of him in prayer. You and I are free. We are free folks to the glory of God. But many of us don't think about anybody else when we pray. Because we are so consumed with where we are. Why? Because something needs to happen to us. Verse 17. So what is his prayer point going to be? Is he going to be praying, you guys pray for me to get released and get favor with the judge? Or I'm going to pray that you guys, each one of you will have a Lexus, a uh, Lamborghini, a Maserati, and... No! No! Now, are those things bad? No, they are not bad. But I'm just saying that this man has been possessed by something bigger than any of us can imagine. His prayer, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. His first prayer point, you guys need to get the wisdom and this revelation concerning because you need to know all the things God has done and said about you, they are all true, but you will never know they are true unless you get the spirit of revelation like he did. Next verse. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Let me just pack there for a quick second. What does it mean that the eyes of our understanding be enlightened? Very simple. He's saying that you and I must see beyond what our eyes are seeing. Our hearts must be enlightened. We must have light in our heart to perceive something that our eyes cannot see. Again, it goes back to what they said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where it says, eyes have not seen. The things we are talking about, eyes don't see them. Eyes don't see them. But yet, our eyes must be enlightened. Hmm. Let's go to a couple of scriptures. Second, well, let's, let's read Genesis 27. Genesis 27 verse 1. Genesis 27 verse 1. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim, he could not see. Can you imagine that? This great patriarch. The day came, his eyes were so dim, he could not see. And as a result, what happened? He made a wrong choice. I don't have time to read all of it. You can read all 29 verses. But this is when Isaac mistook Jacob for Esau. The Bible said he could not see. Now, this guy, his eyes were dim, he couldn't see. Making the wrong choice because what? He could not see. If you, if my eyes and your eyes are wide open, I mean in the spirit realm, we will not be making the same choices we're making now. The reason we make some of the choices we make is because we think this is the best thing to do, but the truth of the matter is we are seen with limitation. So Paul said, you've got to have your eyes enlightened. Because as long as you're trying to figure God out with your natural senses and natural eyes, you'll miss it. Not only will you miss it, you will not really see what God has for you. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings. Actually, no, 2 Kings chapter 6, I'm sorry. 2 Kings chapter 6. Let's start from like verse 13. This is Elisha. Okay, yes. Verse 13. So he said, this is the king of, uh, I believe, uh, Syria. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him saying, surely he's in Dothan. Go on. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, how many of you know this was a true story? This guy actually saw danger. I mean, come on. Army surrounding your city? And they didn't come to protect you, they come to get you. 
So the man said, what in the world are we going to do? Read on. So he answered, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, I'm reading all of this so you understand why Paul is saying your eyes need to be enlightened. Because as long as your eyes are closed, you see all the calamity around you. You see all the things on the news. You're hearing all this bad news and your heart is fainting by the moment. Fear grips you. And in this presence of fear, there is no faith. Fear and faith do not exist together. When fear checks in, faith checks out. So the first thing Elisha said, chill. I know they are there. Don't worry about it. We got this. Oh, hallelujah. We got this. It's no big deal. The man said, are you sure? Are you, can't you see these guys? They have they are sergeants there. They are lieutenants. He probably was telling him all the, all the, all the uh, brigadier. All of them are there. They carry machine gun, machete, AK-47. Chill, chill, chill. So finally, he saw that this guy was just too, his fear was too much. He said, okay, God, do him a favor. Next verse. Next verse. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray. Open his eyes that he may see. Now, mind you, all that moment, it was not that he was blind. He could see. He was just seen from the earthly perspective. And he could not see what God had already done. The horses and chariots just didn't get there when he prayed. They were there all along. But fear would not let him see what God had already provided. That's the reason this prayer is so critical. Paul says, listen, 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 listen. I'm not praying for you to get a car or to get a house, your husband, your wife, children. All those things are good. But if you can just see what God has done, those things will be nothing but easy for you to possess. One last point and then we're going to pray. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Pastor doesn't get a mic so we can, you can come help to pray here. Acts chapter 9. Give it to me in the NLT there. New Living Translation. Acts chapter 9. Thank you. Now, remember Paul gave us this revelation. In Acts chapter 9, the Bible says, Meanwhile, Saul was authoring threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them both, men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. 
He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now, watch what happens next. Verse 7. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Verse 8. Saul picked himself up off the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he was what? Blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. Verse 9, the last verse. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Whoa! Why did Paul understand? How? Why, why, why did he understand the fact that our eyes must be opened? Because he experienced a blindness. As he went to Damascus, ah, zeal, my God, I'm going to get them. I'm putting them all in jail. Glory to God. I'm going to get brownie points with God. I'm going to arrest all these jokers. I don't know who they think they are. All these silly, stupid people calling themselves Christians. Uh-huh. We're going to see. He was going there with the light of the law. He was on a mission with the light that he had under the law. And Jesus said, you cannot use the light of the law to carry out a grace mission. So in order to qualify you for grace, I must first blind you to all the things you thought you'd know. And I'm saying to us tonight, in order for you and I to have our eyes enlightened and to have the light of God shining forth in and through us, some of the head knowledge of the things we have learned must be unlearned because you cannot keep both in the same treasure house. God had to blind him, get him off his horse, humble him, and then after three days, he gave him light. And Paul said, ah, now I know. If I'm going to pray for anybody, the first thing they got to get is the light, the light of their understanding. Did you get it? So I just want us to take a pause and spend the next 10 minutes and just pray. That's how critical this is. I don't want to just give out information and just teach and teach and teach and you put the information on the shelf like the other things you've heard. And there's no change. I want to see transformation. Yes. 